It is unequivocal that humanity is responsible for the majority of warming seen on our planet in the last 200 years. And this warming will continue to intensify unless dramatic reductions in greenhouse gases are achieved. These are the findings of the most recent assessment from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This month, world leaders have gathered in Glasgow to discuss the climate crisis at the COP26 conference. Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick and in this episode we are digging into the latest findings on climate change and the key objectives of COP26. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. John Hanley, a climate scientist with Met Aaron and who will be attending the conference in Glasgow. So John we will hear a lot of this acronym in the next uh, the next couple of weeks, I guess. Can you tell us what, what the IPCC is? So hi, Noel. Hi, Liz. Uh, and thanks, first of all, for having me on. So the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this is a UN body that was established in 1988 by the uh, United Nations Environment Programme and also by the World Meteorological Organization. And the key aim of the IPCC is to provide policymakers with regular scientific updates and assessments on climate change and uh, what the current status is and what the current knowledge. And the IPCC does this through, through assessment reports. And uh, the first assessment report was published in 1990, and we've had various uh, updates then since. And we're in the middle at the moment of, of, the, of the sixth assessment report being published. And uh, the first part of that was published this year in August. So your listeners might have been following that in terms of there's a lot of media coverage about what the RBCC sixth assessment report was saying. And that was the first part called the working first working group, working group one. And that focuses on the physical science spaces. Uh, working groups two and three then focus on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. That's group two. And group three then is mitigation of climate change. And those parts will be published next year in 2022, along with a synthesis report. And um, so we're just at the beginning now of this sort of this new publishing cycle um, for the IPCC assessment reports, at least, and that's the sixth. So what I'm hearing is that um, the IPCC AR6, like the one that's just been uh, published, is just kind of giving us the findings and it's kind of telling us maybe what needs to be done, but it doesn't necessarily tell us how it can be done. Is that correct? So what the this part of the of the AR6 is like I said, it's the physical science basis, and so that's working group one. And what that's really focusing on is you know the physical science, what what is changing and what's causing those changes. And the key message coming out of working group one AR6 is that it's unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, the ocean, and the land. And it's also very clear that climate change is widespread, rapid, and intensifying. And so this is a clear message that's coming out of, of the latest report. And it tells us then what's what's causing that, what's driving that. So it's the increased greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. So increases in greenhouse gases that we've, we're all familiar with, like uh, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. Those increases have been driven primarily by human activities uh, through burning of fossil fuels and land use changes. And so working group one kind of sets the scene. It tells us what is happening, what's causing those changes. It also gives an idea then of what may happen in the future. So there are future projections and there are pathways exploring possible futures. And so what may happen with increasing or with changes in in human activity in terms of human emissions. Um, 
but it's not prescriptive. So the obviously doesn't say, well, we now we we must take X action, do X, Y, Z. Um, but it is very clear that the warming that we've seen so far, so we've seen since pre-industrial times, we've seen about 1.1 degrees Celsius uh, warming compared to the pre-industrial. That's where we are in the, in the most recent decade from 2011, 2020. And if greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, if they continue to increase, we're going to see continued warming, continued impacts then as a result of that warming. And the only way to, to arrest this and to, to change this picture of what we're seeing will be to stabilize at the peak greenhouse gas concentration, and first of all, the peak emissions, and then slowly but rapidly begin to reduce those emissions um, so that the warming that we see as a result then will be, will be reduced uh, over time. In addition to that, that 1.1 degree rise in, in surface temperature that we've seen, what other indicators do we have for climate change as, as outlined in the report? Yeah, so we have a number of, of other indicators. Um, so it's often the temperature is sort of a key headline that often gets a lot of attention that we are at this 1.1 degrees Celsius uh, rise. We're also seeing impacts in terms of the ocean. So sea level rise is a very clear indicator that we've seen increases in terms of, uh, of as a result of the increasing temperature. So as the ocean warms, it expands. And we're also seeing uh, sea level rise as a result of uh, glaciers uh, melting and also uh, ice sheets then reducing and melting. So this is, we've seen about 0 0.2 meters of sea level rise since about 1900. And the RCC uh, details that. And that's as a result of, of, of global warming and increasing greenhouse gas concentrations. We're also seeing changes then in what's known as the cryosphere. So ice and, uh, and snow. So Arctic ice, sea ice extent is uh, reducing over time. As I mentioned before, we're seeing uh, melting in terms of the ice sheets. We're seeing glaciers retreating. So we're seeing all these signals and we're also seeing crucially changes in terms of extremes. Um, and then we're seeing that then play out in terms of weather uh, globally. We can expect to see uh, increases in terms of the intensity and frequency of, of hot extremes like heat waves. We can see similar increases in intensity and frequencies of drought, of heavy precipitation. Um, and so this is another clear signal. We can see those changes already at 1.1 degrees Celsius, and they will continue then to intensify if the temperature continues to, to rise. And that's a, that's a really clear and good point to make that while we are looking at uh, forecasts and predictions for the future, in this latest report, we have the data that we have seen some of these intensifications and increased ice loss, et cetera, occurring. Um, and that's, that's, that's detailed in this report. So all those indicators that I just kind of briefly, briefly outlined, the report shows the changes between that we're observing now compared to say pre-industrial times. And then also the area, there's also an area of climate science called extreme event attribution. And that assesses then the degree to which climate change is changing the frequency and the intensity of events like heat waves, uh, like heavy precipitation and like droughts. And uh, that science has advanced rapidly and, and markedly in the last decade or so, and since the last fifth assessment report. And so from that, we can we also sort of have the fingerprint of human influence and human activity on, on these types of events, to what degree then we've, we've changed those, the probabilities and the, the severity of, of these events. And we, we dug a little bit into the effects of ice loss, for example, and why that's occurring in, in a previous episode called Why Ice Matters. And also, we had another episode on the fundamentals of climate change. So for more detail, we recommend uh, having listened to those. Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, you said that we, we hear about these numbers like 
1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, but um, I think, you know, last year there was a 1.2 degree Celsius global rise. But I think um, what's important there, I think, to understand is that what the IPCC is measuring is decadal averages and not year on year averages. So they can vary annually, you know, exactly. so we, we could see legitimately could we see 1.5 in the next few years um for one particular year or is that yeah definitely yeah so th that's a key point Liz. so they we sometimes hear these different figures coming out of say 1.2 degrees uh, celsius rise since pre-industrial and that was the 2020 figure so that was from the world meteorological organization and that was the figure then for the single how warm 2020 was as a single year compared to pre-industrial and um that change then that year and year change there can be quite a lot of variability in the year-on-year -year changes, so we can have influence the global influences like uh, El Nino event, which is which can have a very significant impact on, on the change from one year to another. Or La, La Nina and other events kind of of the same order of magnitude, and so we can see there's a lot of what we'd say variability in the climate system year on year. What the IPCC is interested then more is sort of the signal. So what's happening? What's the overall trend? What's the overall picture? What are we, what, what are humans doing essentially with, through their increasing, through increasing greenhouse concentrations? What's that, what influence is that happening on the, on the climate? So therefore they look at then more at the decadal picture, like you just mentioned. So averaged over 10 years or averaged over 20 years. The 1.1 degree Celsius figure, that's averaged from 2011 to 2020. We do sometimes talk about these thresholds and then we're gonna get onto that probably in a moment, the 1.5 degree threshold and the two degree threshold. Again, that would be averaged from the IPCC's point of view, that would be averaged over a period of 20 years. Um, however, for a single year, we are, we're currently at 1.2 degrees as of 2020, and we may well reach 1.5 degrees Celsius in the coming years, in even perhaps even before 2030, say, for a single year. But that in, in itself doesn't constitute breaking the, these thresholds that, we've, that are mentioned in terms of the Paris Agreement, in terms of the, the International Treaty. And this report, it, it really lays the responsibility for that, for that uh, trend that, we've, that you've referred to in, in, in terms of warming. It really lays that responsibility at the door of humanity, right? In terms of like yeah. other natural drivers like solar and volcanic activity, the net effect is, is quite minimal. It's really the human activity that's driving this warming. Exactly, yeah. So the net effect there from the other, from say solar activity that you just mentioned, Noel, or from, from volcanic activity, that's kind of negligible in terms of the contribution to that 1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, so what the key thing, so we, we can measure that or we have an idea of, of that by looking at climate modeling studies. So we can run our climate models and we can reproduce to a very good degree of accuracy. We can reproduce the observed warming that we've seen from pre-industrial to the present. So that 1.1 degree figure more or less. And then we can take those climate models and run them also then with in an alternative scenario as if we hadn't emit, emitted the emissions that we've emitted and changed those concentrations. So as if you just had the natural sort of variability with say solar activity, volcanic activity varying in, in a natural way, in, in natural cycles. And if you do that, you see a the clear difference between what you observe with the human activities included and then with them excluded. And so that's how the IPCC then can, along with then other lines of evidence, the IPCC then can say, as I mentioned earlier, that it's unequivocal that human influence has warmed the, the overall Earth system. And this is even a, this is a slight update to what would have been said, say, even in AR5, the previous report. So the previous report said then when it was making a statement about human influence, it said that it was extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of, of the observed warming. 
And then if we go all the way back to the first assessment report back in 1990, that was talking about that humankind had the capability of increasing temperatures if greenhouse gas concentrations were, were to rise. So we've seen there's been a progression there in terms of the in terms of how, how solid we are when we make that statement. And when we say now in AR6, when, this, when the IPCC report says in AR6 that it's unequivocal, that means that it's a statement of fact now. So there's there's no uncertainty there. You know, we, we, we know that from, from, from the various research that's been done over, over the past 30 years or so. So we know that the, the impacts of climate change are going to vary um, across like regions. Like, um, can you tell me a bit about what the key impacts um, for Ireland and its climate are looking like? I mean, first of all, in terms of the global pictures, there, is a, there will be variations regionally in terms of what's going to happen globally. So we are observing that the Arctic region, for example, is warming much faster than the global average, more than twice the rate of the global average. And also land areas are warming more quickly than more rapidly than the ocean. Then in terms of regional differences, so the IPCC doesn't go down into detail of on a country basis or even then on a regional basis within a country, but it does give us an idea of what, what happens in this part of the world in, in terms of, of Europe and overall. And so the IPCC is, is very clear that even in areas, for example, like in, in Europe and here in Ireland, that we can expect uh, extremes in terms of uh, heat waves to increase in terms of uh, the frequency and their intensity. We can expect increases in heavy precipitation events, uh, increasing drought. And we see that also in terms of locally here in Ireland. We've, there was a status of Ireland climate report uh, that was published this year at the same time as the IPCC report, actually. And that gave, that gave the current status of, of Ireland's climate and uh, looked at things like, well, how much warming have we seen in Ireland compared to pre-industrial? Um, how has precipitation changed in Ireland? And all the key measures that that report looked at uh, was in very close agreement with what we could be expected from, from the global picture that the IPCC paints. So we've seen in Ireland about one degree Celsius rise in temperatures compared to pre-industrial. So quite, tracking quite close to the global average. We've seen um, an increase in annual precipitation of about 6% in recent decades compared to, let's say, 1961 to 1990. We're seeing um, you know, signals there in terms of drought, particularly in the eastern part of the country. We're seeing sea level rise, definitely, which is, which is agreeing with the global picture. So in terms of Ireland, we, the key thing to stress here is that we're already seeing the impacts of climate change locally here in Ireland. And then what's going to happen uh, in terms of the future? So broadly speaking, we can expect to follow what the IPCC is, is outlining in terms of these changes then intensifying. So we will see then again increases in intensity and frequency of, of the extreme events that I've just outlined a couple of times. Uh, and then for Ireland, if you want to get more of a regional and more of a detailed uh, picture, what's typically done is that you take the global uh, modeling data and then you can do something called regional downscaling. And there are also other methods to look at what the regional picture, you can also do statistical downscaling. But uh, Medairn and uh, the Irish Centre for High End Computing, iCheck, have done quite a lot of work in the last 15, 20 years or so, which has been funded by, by Medairn, by the Marine Institute and by the EPA. And that's taking global data and then it's downscaled and look at it for Ireland. What are we seeing in terms of changes we can expect that you just touched upon this? And they're, again, very consistent with what the IPCC is saying and, and what, what, what you would expect just from the global picture. Comparing uh, mid-century in Ireland to 1981 to 2000, we're expecting the temperature increases to be of the order of 1 degree to 1.6 degrees. We're expecting to see increases in terms of heat waves. And we're expecting to see 
precipitation rainfall becoming more variable, so more extreme rainfall events, but also more dry periods. Um, so that's backing up that that potential drought signal that I that I mentioned there, uh, just a moment ago. Uh, we're also seeing sea level rise, and, and that will continue. And we will also see changes then in terms of wind speeds in, in Ireland. Um, so the, the model projections are showing uh, a decrease in wind speed, which will have an impact for wind turbine uh, and for energy, renewable energy production in Ireland. Uh, the key thing to stress there also, though, is that some of these signals are kind of stronger and more certain than others, like the, the temperature, the precip, uh, rainfall. We have kind of a good idea of, of the degree of certainty we can have in those projections for wind. WCC actually stresses that uh, for our particular region in the North Atlantic, there are substantial uncertainties there of what's going to happen in the next few decades um, in terms of the of changes in the North Atlantic storm track and in, in terms of changes then on, on wind speeds. But then just to go back just one step finally then in terms of what we can expect to see and Ireland expect to see globally, the WCC then looks at future projections and it looks out for to the end of the 21st century but also it looks, you know, it, it, it shows the pathway from, from here to there. And all of the scenarios that the IPCC considers, all of them are hitting 1.5 degrees uh, warming by, by mid-century. So sometime between 2021 and 2040, and usually the midpoint there is taken. So sometime in the early 2030s, all of the pathways show that we're going to get to at least 1.5 degrees warming compared to pre-industrial. What happens then, then thereafter, is very, very is heavily dependent on the actions that we take now. So if we take radical actions now to to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and to begin to stabilize the greenhouse gas concentrations, particularly CO two, and to reduce methane concentrations and to reduce nitrous oxide concentrations. If we take that action now, we can perhaps stabilize at that 1.5, 1.4 degrees Celsius, or, or maybe somewhere between there and two degrees. Um, if we stay in our current trajectory, we're looking at you know, globally speaking, we're looking at warming of three, four, five degrees and potentially uh, higher towards the end of the century. And um, so that's what we can kind of expect both globally and in terms of Ireland in the coming, say, two or three decades or so. That's really worrying when you think about, you know, what happened this summer, you know, in Canada, um, you know, with the wildfires and the floods in Germany as well. Like, you know, and that's that's already happening with warming of 1.1. I mean, what? What's going to happen at 1.5? Um, yeah, well, I mean, these events will, you know, it, it will just intensify. It, it will, you know, the, the frequency of those events will, of the particular events that we've touched on, um, will likely increase. The severity of, of a lot of those events will increase. And then it will increase depending on how much additional warming you put into the system. So if we get to 1.5 degrees, that will have larger impacts, climate impacts, than where we are at the moment at 1.1. And um, two degrees would have larger impacts still. So there are no real sort of safe levels or safe thresholds here. Every bit of, of warming will have an additional impact and every ton of additional emissions that we emit in terms of CO2, methane, nitrous oxide will contribute then to, to additional warming as well. I guess in addition to the physical variations in how climate change will affect certain regions, you know, certain regions will have stronger effects than others. What has to be considered also is the ability for certain locations or certain societies to adapt to those changes. I mean, that's going to be another impact on top of that, right? That you'll have a disparity in how climate change will affect certain regions, but then also how certain regions will be able to uh, adapt to those consequences. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No. So you have like the idea here, then you just hit in the key term there of adaptation, how they can adapt, how resilient they are to these changes, to climate changes. 
So we do know the RCC report is quite clear that the underlying, so from the physical science basis, you know, the the intense, the frequency and the intensity of of things like heat waves and of droughts and of heavy precipitation, these are these are going to change and are going to increase. Uh, so that's the underlying kind of physics is what's happening. But then when you talk about impacts, what's going to happen, you know, for a particular region, for a particular country, that's a complex interplay then between the of what's happening in terms of the weather and climate events, particularly the more extreme events, and then how vulnerable that country or or that area is to those uh, changes, or how resilient that they, and how to what extent they can adapt to the changes. The global north and the global south will have very different uh, abilities in terms of being able to adapt and to be more resilient to, to be resilient to these changes. So the global south will see you know significant impacts in terms of the the underlying changes in in the in the events that we just spoke about but in addition you know there most of those countries are far less developed than than the global north and so they have less you know less fin financial ability in most cases to adapt and to be resilient to those changes so we're talking about here in particular you know low-lying nations in the pacific talking about countries like bangladesh which are low-lying which are very vulnerable to sea level rise um, as a continent africa for example so the impacts will be disproportionate to in those areas. Um, and additionally, those are the areas which, cumulatively speaking, have contribu contributed least to the position they're in at the moment. So that also touches on the area of you know, climate uh, justice and, and equity, which is also a, you know, a, a, key, a key part of, of the overall picture. So the, yeah, the degree to which countries are, are resilient or able to adapt will be will be a function of, of their developments and also a function of the assistance they get then for from example from countries uh, that are more developed countries in, in the global north uh, g20 countries for, for example so with the cop 26 conference around the corner and, and this this uh, report being released shortly before it there's obviously a focus on key limits or thresholds in terms of temperature rises and emissions, and we've already mentioned some of those, you know, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius. Um, in terms of reaching some of those thresholds, does the report illuminate how close we are to, to reaching those? Yeah, so the report looks at basically what's essentially driving those the increases that we've seen already. And there's a nice result in climate science which shows that the warming that we've that we're, we're observing is more or less proportional to the cumulative CO2 emissions that we've emitted since since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, even. And so, in order in order to begin to stabilize the temperature at, at a certain level, we would need to get to net zero CO2 at some point, and then even then begin to to kick in some negative emissions. We wanted to bring down that if we exceeded some threshold, we wanted to then reduce the temperature we reached. We would be into what's called negative emission territory to reduce that. And then non-CO2 factors come into play as well. So like methane and nitrous oxide have significant impacts in terms of warming. So they will contribute. What the latest IPCC AR6 report does is that it looks at uh, what the remaining carbon budgets would be for reaching uh, to keep us within the 1.5 threshold and keep us within the 2 degree threshold. And what they're saying there is like the situation is extremely urgent. So that's, you know, we're talking about this, you know, I think we all know that you know, things are, are in quite an urgent situation, but when you look at those particular budgets, the urgency really kind of jumps out. So for the 1.5 degree remaining carbon budget, we'd have something like about 10 years at the current rate of emissions that we're emitting globally, if we were to keep those kind of constant. 
Now remember that pre-COVID emissions, global emissions tended to be tend to increase year on year with the exception of recessions. So we don't even we haven't got to the point yet globally of stabilizing emissions. They they generally can't continue to grow. But if, if they were to remain more or less at say 2019 levels, we'd have about 10 years uh, of more or less of, of that budget for a two-thirds probability of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, there's a range there, so that's not exactly precise. It's sort of a it's a rough ballpark figure that we can we can have kind of in mind. And then for two degrees, that rough figure will be maybe something of the order of about say 30 years. So by you know, we'd we exhaust that carbon budget, remaining carbon budget, it's called by by 2050. And then in order, you can say then, well, how, how are we going to achieve that? So how, how do we get there? And again, just getting back to the IPCC looks at future pathways um, called SSP, so SSP Shared Socioeconomic Pathways. And um, it, it basically charts out what we would have to do to stay below two degrees, to stay below 1.5 degrees. And for the trajectories which keep us, especially to keep us below 1.5, they show dramatic reductions in all greenhouse gases starting immediately, starting from, from, well, from 2020, ideally. But starting immediately, you would have dramatic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, and that would, have, that would then begin to stabilize the, the atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations. And you would also, at the same time, then, those pathways are reliant on negative emissions at some point in the future from mid-century onwards. So strong negative emissions to... You know, because we may exceed the threshold maybe briefly, and then we'd have to, to bring that. And also a key point here is that we will have some residual emissions, no matter, almost certainly, no matter what happens. So there will be some residual emissions from, from things like, you know, agriculture and, and, and other practices that we will eventually have to balance in some way. Um, but if we ask then, so what, what are negative emissions? So negative emissions yeah. basically mean that we, you know, we start taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, um, and we start reducing CO2 concentrations by, by doing so, or we start arresting the, the increase of, of increasing CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. And there are a few methods for doing that. Uh, so one method is an, our, our nature-based solutions, and then another path taking, we could take then our technological solutions. And the nature-based solutions are things like uh, afforestation, so we could plant lots more trees. Those trees then would take down carbon dioxide through photosynthesis, and um, you know, as long as those trees then were kind of left in place, or they didn't, if they weren't burned, or the carbon wasn't released, that would essentially reduce uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. And then we can also have other nature-based solutions, like we could restore wetlands, for, for example, peatlands in Ireland, uh, soil carbon sequestration. Um, so these nature-based solutions are, we we know about them already. Uh, so they they're proven, they're cost-effective. Um, they're not really. We don't have them on scale at the scale of the moment that we need to make a to make a proper impact on our, our overall global emissions. But we could certainly, you know, look to increase our potential negative emissions there through nature-based solutions. Then the technological side, that's looking at things like direct uh, carbon or carbon capture from from the atmosphere and storing it. Also, technology uh, called BEX, so bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. So that's where you, you plant trees, they take CO2 from the atmosphere, you then burn those trees to produce electricity and you capture the carbon before it's emitted into the atmosphere and then you store it somewhere uh, that's stable and that's not then, that doesn't re-enter the, the carbon cycle. And you also have things like enhanced weathering. So there are technological solutions that, that are being investigated. 
so the key thing to point out, out here is that those technological solutions are, they're sort of like proof of concepts globally of small projects here and there, but at the moment they're having a, a negligible impact on overall global emissions. So they're, they're capturing a, a very, very tiny, uh, a negligible amount of, of what our global emissions are. And it, will, it would take time for these emission, for these negative technologies to wrap up. Um, so there's issues there in terms of scalability. There are questions about whether these technologies are, are, to what degree we can scale them. And there are also additionally potentially negative impacts in terms of um, biodiversity, water supply, um, and, and potentially food production impacts if we scale up some of these technologies. So I think the, the kind of message here is that we have proven nature-based solutions and we should implement them you know, as rapidly as we can. We have potential technological solutions and they should be uh, pursued and explored uh, as, as also as rapidly as, uh, and, expand and scaled as rapidly uh, as we can. But they won't likely kick in for, for probably another couple of decades or so, or sometime around mid-century. Certainly not in the next 10 years or so, the main tools we have at our disposal are to reduce our own emissions from human activities and then to enhance then potentially the nature-based solutions to, to, to try and ameliorate the situation. But these other technological solutions are more for some time in the future and to rely on them would be, is, you know, is possibly not our best approach here. We should do the, the maximum we can do now to reduce our emissions and take action now because those potential future negative emissions may not be feasible at the, at the scale that we need or may not be commercial also. So some of these solutions are quite expensive economically, um, but they should be pursued nonetheless. So, you know, keep all options open. The difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is negligible to us, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives. But it's it's actually a massive jump in terms of climate change. Like, you know, the difference of what will happen at 1.5 compared to what would happen at a 2 degree change is is massive, basically. Can you yeah. uh, go a little bit more into that? Because we talk a lot about 1.5 and 2 degrees and you know, they're, they seem to be like, you know, almost interchangeable, but they're not actually. It's, it's, yeah. it's a significant might, difference between the two. Exactly. And people might have the same sort of, sort of natural reaction might be like, well, that seems like kind of a small, small difference. Or like certainly, as you just mentioned, Liz, in our day-to-day -day lives, I mean, a half a degree change would be barely even perceptible and certainly nothing that we'd be, you know, particularly kind of concerned with. But the difference here, so we're talking about, you know, climate average changes and then what we perceive like in our day-to-day -day lives in, in terms of weather. In terms of climate, that half a degree change is, is very, very significant, uh, even where we are at the moment. So we're seeing significant impacts uh, from, from climate change at 1.1 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial. If we go from 1.1 to 1.5, those impact, climate impacts will intensify. COP fit, fits in with all of this with the IPCC report. So what exactly, John, is COP? So COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And this is basically the decision-making body of uh, the UNFCCC, and that's the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's a treaty that was established in, uh, at the Rio summit in 1992 to basically for, for global states and for, for governments to come together and to take action on climate change. And that's the parent treaty of a lot of treaties that listeners may, be, may have heard of or be familiar with, like the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, and then the famous Paris Agreement in 2015. And COP then is the annual conference, the annual meeting and the decision-making body for, for, that, uh, for that treaty. And so then governments come together and they discuss 
what actions have been taken to you know to deal with the challenge of climate change and uh, where are we and how are these how is, how is for example the Paris Agreement Treaty being being implemented and where where are we in terms of progress on that front? You mentioned the Paris Agreement there, John, um, which was agreed at, at COP twenty one in in two thousand and fifteen. Mm-hmm. That will obviously be discussed at the upcoming COP. What were what were the main goals or objectives of that agreement? Yeah, so we've t- sort of touched on on these thresholds or goals that we've as we've been talking about. So the the Paris Agreement is the the core, the main goal will be to limit global warming to well below two degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial, uh, and then to ideally, preferably aim for one point five degrees Celsius. And to also then get greenhouse gas emissions to peak as soon as possible, and then get get us on a pathway to net zero uh, for or climate neutrality by mid-century. So that's the that's the main kind of goal, and that that's goal number one. There also has, it also has a second goal in terms of increasing the ability of countries to deal with the impacts, the adverse impacts of climate change, and that's where we touched on that already in terms of adaptation and climate resilience, and particularly then helping. The less developed countries getting support from the developed countries for, for doing so. And then a third kind of goal is to ensure the finance flows are consistent with all of this so that they, you know, finance flows are supporting um, a shift uh, that's, that's needed. And in particular, also then, uh, so to build climate resilience and again to support uh, less developed countries where, where needed. So those are very ambitious goals. Have, have have they outlined within that agreement how it will be implemented? Yes. Yeah, so the Paris Agreement is, as is a, as a treaty, is uh, is kind of like a hybrid treaty. So it's a combination between binding provisions and non-binding provisions. And the binding provisions are like so countries have to come forward with NDCs, so nationally determined contributions. So each country has to have an NDC, which is basically their plan of how they intend to stabilize and reduce their their carbon emissions and um, then there are there are mechanisms there to to ensure that there's transparency uh, in terms of what all the individual states are doing so that we can keep track of, of who's doing what and who's who's basically um filling their their promises that they made in terms of their ndcs now the ndcs themselves from the paris agreement point of view are are non-binding so countries come forward and, and there aren't set targets there from from the from the Paris Agreement, and that's a departure from previous uh, agreements or previous or the Kyoto Protocol, for example, had set targets for, for each for the developed nations, and so Paris the Paris Agreement rather leaves that to the individual states or blocks of states block of states like the EU, and they rather come forward with their nationally determined contribution, and then they they outline then how how that how, how that will be implemented, and the Paris Agreement works on, on five year cycles. And we're just going now to the end of the first five-year cycle, and we're beginning a new five-year cycle. And part of the agreement is that we'll have something called enhanced ambition or the ratchet mechanism, as it's kind of colloquially known. Known so that each um, on each cycle, countries will come forward and increase their ambition in relation to their their targets and in relation to to what they what they plan to do uh, in the coming five, ten, ten years, and and beyond. And we've seen that in terms of so the EU has come forward for COP26, has, has come forward with enhanced ambition of reducing greenhouse gases by 55% by 2030. And Ireland also has come forward with enhanced ambition. So our target now is 51% reduction by 2030 compared to 2018. Um, and this is part then of, of what will be uh, presented at COP26. 
26 by the various parties and will also be discussed. So parties will be encouraged to come forward with, with their new NDCs and will be encouraged to enhance their ambition uh, also. In terms of helping other countries to adapt to the effects of climate change, how will that be implemented? Is there a proposal to help financially or technically or, or what's the, the layout for that? Yeah, so there are proposals, there are, and that, that will be discussed also at the upcoming COP26. So, you know, they want to finalize the so-called the Paris Rulebook and then to find, to basically discuss how will the, how will support be given in terms of finance, in terms of technological support, in terms of increasing climate resilience, uh, particularly for the less developed countries. And then a key headline figure then that listeners may be familiar with that they probably will hear in the next week or two is this $100 billion annual uh, contribution from developed countries to developing countries. And that fund, or that goal of $100 billion per year is to precisely help with, with this trans transformation and to help build climate resilience and to help them with, with their efforts in terms of adaptation. Uh, at the moment, we're a little bit off our off, a little bit off from that goal. So I think in 2019, there was something like $80 billion um, in terms of that, in terms of that what was delivered. Um, and then for, for the coming years, COP26 is looking to increase the, the ambition there and to increase that, to get closer to that 100 billion target. And that's something that will be a key discussion point. And it's, it's really a key point for the developing countries so that they have support and um, so they can implement the Paris Agreement themselves. Yeah. Okay, so that will be a point to listen out for then, I guess, when we're listening to the news over the next couple of weeks to see if that, that target is reached or agreed to. Exactly, yeah. And then uh, along with enhanced targets, uh, so, you know, the NDCs that we just mentioned a moment ago, at the moment, those NDCs globally, national German contributions, are nowhere near what's needed for 1.5 degrees, uh, the 1.5 degree threshold. So there was a report that came out this week, which from the UN Environment Programme, which looked at where, where are we in terms of what's pledged? Um, so what kind of warming would we see if all countries implemented their current pledges? And then where would be if they'd implemented the sort of more ambitious, uh, more vague kind of pledges? And that report you know, stated that based on current pledges, uh, the ones that are detailed at least between now and 2030 and beyond, the detailed pledges show a warming of about 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So that's way, way off the 1.5 or 2 degree thresholds that we were talking about uh, a moment ago. And um, if so, countries do have a lot of countries do have net zero targets for mid-century for like 2050 and 2060. However, a lot of those, some of those countries don't have detailed plans of how they're going to get there. And particularly between now and 2030, they haven't fleshed out the kind of the, the nitty gritty and the, de the detail. And if those countries were to come with, with detailed proposals of how they plan to get to net zero, by mid-century, there it's taught or the UN uh, EP sketched that they think there could be an additional 0.5 degrees Celsius uh, reduction. So you could be looking at something like 2.2 degrees Celsius by the end of the 21st century, um, compared with maybe 2.7. So that's kind of like a best case scenario currently. Um, again, there's still a large gap there between between that and between 1.5 degrees Celsius. And one of the key goals of COP26 too is the a kind of key phrase that you might hear is this idea of keeping 1.5 degrees alive. So that, you know, we do our utmost to try and at least keep it feasible or, or keep it keep the potential of, of limiting the warming to 1.5 degrees at, at COP26. Uh, and to do so, the pledges 
that we have between, and particularly the pledges for 2030, would need to be, um, you know, tightened, and the, the ambition would need to be raised there considerably. But that would be a key. That's something to also to listen out for and to to follow in the next couple of weeks, so that there'll be really that will be kind of the core of the negotiation, to finalise the Paris Rulebook, to enhance these NDCs, and um, to enhance transparency, so that you know we can keep track of everything that's going on here. So as I mentioned earlier. Paris Agreement isn't in itself binding, but the idea is that countries will themselves come forward with their with their NDCs, and there will be enough transparency of, of who's doing what that if countries fail to live up to their pledges to their to their NDCs, that they will come under increasing pressure from their own citizens internally, and would also come under increasing pressure from the global community, and so that you know it's potentially there will be potentially repercussions for for any country if it were to decide not to fulfil its its NDCs or its pledges. So we that'll be a key key topic to watch as well. Is you know, is the Paris Rulebook finalised? Uh, do we see movement in terms of this 100 billion dollar figure? Do we see movement in terms of in, enhanced, increased ambition uh, in terms of NDCs? And um, these are all kind of key key things to to look out for. Yeah. And that support to developing countries is is really important, and it's also like born out of the fact that. Isn't it isn't it correct to say that like of the the, the G20 um, emitters that like seventy five percent of the world's emissions is coming from the the rich countries basically? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's rightly. So the the latest figures are for like 2019, 2020, uh, It's estimated that global emissions that the G20 uh, accounts for something of the order of seventy five to eighty percent of, of global emissions. So those key G20 countries are, are, you know, they're responsible for the, for the bulk of, of current emissions. Uh, if you were to look at the poorest 50 countries in the world, they, in contrast, they'd be responsible for something like a couple of percent. So a, a negligible figure in comparison. So that's, again, it's key to, to watch a cop of how the G20 countries, you know, what they're saying, how they're, what their increased ambition is or, or what their plans are for, for net zero by mid-century. But then, crucially, what their plans are for between now and 2030. And one of the things that's, you know, a bit like, I suppose, airy fairy about the Paris Agreement is like some of it's non-binding and some of it's binding. Like, you know, are there are there things that that make these things legally binding? Um, you know, have some countries, you know, put this into their in the Paris Agreement into law? And yeah. would we be wanting to see that at COP that more countries would be would be writing Paris Agreement um, goals in, into the laws of their countries. Is that how we get the Paris Agreement from being a non-legally binding um, treaty or a hybrid treaty into something that's proper and... Um, yeah, no, that, that's right. a really good point. So that's, that, it's precisely, that's, that's one of the key, uh, hopefully, points that we're going to see at, at COP26 and, and beyond. So as I mentioned, the COP Paris Agreement is a hybrid, hybrid treaty. So the, the NDCs are not legally binding, at least at the, at the level of, of the Paris Agreement. But then individual countries can then uh, decide to make them legally binding. And so, for example, the EU has done that. So the EU has the, the goal of 55% reduction by 2030, and that's legally binding. Ireland has done it. So we have the Climate Action Act 2021, which was signed into law this year. And that makes our 51% goal by 2030 legally binding. And many countries globally have made the their NDC, their their pledges, their Paris pledges, have made them bind legally binding uh, in their own jurisdiction. 
However, that's still overall that we that will be a minority of countries globally. So what we're hoping to see then at, at COP26 and, and beyond, so there'll be time for this also to develop, would be ideally countries would decide to to make these provisions uh, legally binding within within their own jurisdictions. Um, and so yeah, that's 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 a good point to make that we could that that would further tighten then the the ambition and hopefully the the probability of of actually meeting these very ambitious targets. So I guess that's vital to make sure this agreement is robust to things like government change, right? So that if yeah. you have a country where exactly. the political ideologies change after a few years, that these uh, commitments are already in place and that they are legally binding, so that they can't be reversed every every few years when the government changes exactly yeah that, that's key note as well is that yeah. if they're if they're brought into law like this and they are actually legally binding then you know subsequent governments then have to abide by 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 those legally binding provisions and um i mean i think we're seeing though and particularly in the eu um and in in other developed countries there is a, a massive shift in terms of public support even for what to take action on climate change and um so that's why i mentioned also earlier that you know, states, countries, even if they don't make their provisions legally binding, states that have non-legally binding NDCs, but which choose not to follow through what, what they've pledged, will come under increasing pressure from, from their own citizens and also from, from the global uh, the global community. Um, but ideally, yes, ideally they will be put into, they will be made legally binding, and that will then mitigate against any changes in the future in terms of uh, future government changes or, or whatever may happen. Are there are there key nations that are uh, sort of to keep an eye out for for this uh, COP COP twenty six whose sort of cooperation or agreement will be will be vital in, in pushing it forward? You know the G twenty countries are the you know the key players in the whole COP story in the COP twenty six story. They're the countries with the you know the largest share of emissions, but also by far the the most developed and, and as a block you know the, the wealthiest country among the among the wealthiest countries in the world. So, you know, the, the individual members of, of G20, how they, what they come forward with in terms of uh, increased ambition or even just fleshing out what they, what they plan to do between now and 2030 will be key. So in terms of achievements that we would hope to see at COP26, we've, we've touched on a few in terms of uh, updating the NDCs and the five-year plans and also looking at how funding will be provided for adaptation for developing nations and things like that. Are there other key goals that we should be hoping for or looking out for? Yeah, so we have an idea that, you know, likely one um, key kind of proposal that's going to be, or a new initiative that's going to be announced at COP26 is something called the Global Methane Pledge. And this was already announced uh, a month or two ago. Um, so it was jointly signed by the EU and the US. And additional countries then have, have come on board. And the COP26, I, I believe this is planned, they're planning on announcing this kind of more officially and then hoping to get more countries uh, signed to the to the pledge. The signatories of the pledge pledge to reduce uh, their methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And then it's estimated that this could reduce uh, global temperatures by somewhere between 0 0.2, 0 0.3 degrees Celsius by 2050, by, by, by mid-century. And so we've touched on here, you know, often carbon dioxide takes is sort of the key, the key component of what we talk about when we talk about uh, greenhouse gas concentrations and what's contributing to the warming. But the, the latest AR6 report 
um, detailed what the warming contribution was from, from each one of these greenhouse gases. And interestingly, CO2, carbon dioxide, the best estimate is that it's contributed about three quarters of a degree Celsius to the warming that we've observed up until now. But methane has contributed, best estimate is half a degree. So it's a comparable cont contribution. And all of the pathways that look to get to net zero by, by mid-century and that try and keep the 1.5 degree threshold alive and even two degrees, all of those pathways assume that not only do we have strong reductions in carbon dioxide emissions, but we have um, at the same time strong reductions in methane and nitrous oxide emissions. So ideally we would have our current methane and nitrous oxide emissions globally by mid-century, by like 2050. And the global methane pledge then is a key, will, hope will likely be a key component of trying to drive these non-CO2 uh, contributions. So by getting as many countries signed up to the pledge as possible, we can, that will hopefully begin to affect methane concentrations in the atmosphere. And this has the potential to, for, for, for impacts that we will see um, happen on a different time scale than the CO2 um, stabilization emissions or even reductions. So CO2, so the, the, you know, the two gases have different properties in terms of their, their atmospheric chemistry. So CO2 is quite a long-lived gas. So the CO2 we've emitted historically and we're emitting now, that's for some of it will be up there for centuries to millennia. Uh, methane has a much, much shorter lifetime of the order of about a decade. So we're building up more and more CO2 over time. And in order to stabilize that, we need to get to net zero CO2. So we need to stop adding to the contributing to the to, to additional warming. For methane, it's more kind of a flow issue. So it's more, what are we emitting now? And if we were to start reducing the methane emissions, you would quite quickly, within a decade or two, you'd see then um, a, a reaction or you see, you see an effect in terms of global temperatures. So as I mentioned, if we had a 30% reduction by 2030, you could see something of the order of 0.2 degrees Celsius uh, cooling by, by 2050, let's say. And um, so therefore, these non-CO2 uh, contributors to, to the whole story, methane and nitrous oxide, it's important that they're also, that th those reductions happen in concert with CO2 reductions. And then finally, just to say that all those reductions have to happen together. So it can't be a case of, if the global methane pledge is announced at, at COP26, um, this won't be in the place of, of strong and rapid reductions in CO2 emissions or in other emissions or in nitrous oxide nitrous oxide, for example, but all these reductions have to happen together um, and, and quickly in order for us to begin to, to stabilize uh, the temperature. Kind of like that kind of puts me in mind of like, um, like what happened with um, ozone and, and stuff like that, how we were able to kind of draw that back, um, you know, like they realized there was a problem with ozone yeah. and the release of CFCs and we were able to solve that issue um, like through like basically international co cooperation um, exactly, yeah. and, and and so it's something like you know definitely those gases like methane and nitrous oxide could be akin in a way to to something like that whereas co2 is this like massive problem <laughs> like or, or a bigger problem in that it, it stays there for a millennia and stuff like that yeah so both co2 and nitrous oxide are, are long-lived gas okay so okay sorry both <laughs> those cases there we have sort of a, a longer a longer term problem for in the case of methane uh, that has a much, much shorter uh, lifetime in the atmosphere. And so changes there would have a more immediate effect that we would mm. see in the next uh, you know, 10 to 20 years if we made substantial reductions now. Yeah. So John, circling back to Ireland and COP26, 
Ireland has just published two five-year carbon budgets, um, one for 2021 to 2025 and one for 2026 20, to 2030. That's to, towards this goal of reducing emissions by 51% by 2030 that we discussed already that's enshrined in law now. Um, so we're looking at the, the five-year, the first one, 2021 to 25, they want to reduce 4.8%, so carbon emissions by 4.8% per year. Um, year, on year. Of yeah. year on year and then um, ramp it up then after 2025 to 8.3% per year but yep. when we think we think about it in 2020 emission only reduced 3.6% right. and that was despite COVID lockdowns and reduced economic activity yes the do people realize how how much of a social upheaval is going to have to happen in order for this to happen <laughs> like the it's we're, we're really going to have to rethink how we how we live our lives um really in order to to meet those goals yeah so i think you know that's a it's a kind of key point that we've touched on i think already during the chat that we've you know mentioned the urgency it's the reason why those mitigation rates and that's what you know what we're referring to here when we're talking about year and year uh, decreases of of the order five percent or eight percent later on the decade the reason why those mitigation rates are are so high is because you know, if we want to try and make our 1.5 or 2 degree threshold targets, we we need very steep mitigation rates now. If we'd started earlier, you know, 20, 30 years ago, those mitigation rates would have been a lot gentler, a lot lower. They would have been of the order of maybe 2 or 3%. So they're high now because, you know, the remaining room that we have to play with has has, has narrowed dramatically. And, I mean, you're completely right, Liz, that this, this implies, I mean, we saw with the COVID lockdowns that in Ireland, EPA uh, released a report last week that estimated about 3.6% reductions as a, as a result of, of the very, very strict lockdowns that we had in Ireland in, in 2020. So in order for us to start hitting 5%, 8% year in year reductions, we're going to need transformative changes in all aspects of Irish society across the board. To, to, I think to emphasize the, the need to have these strong reductions now and not to delay any longer, I mean, we heard there that the first COP conference was in 1992. Mm. And since 1992, more than half of the CO2 that's been released since the Industrial Revolution uh, has happened in that period. So since we've had the first UN climate conference, more than half the CO2 that's now in the atmosphere has been released since then. And it yeah. really highlights, as you were saying, John, the need for rapid action that we can't delay it any longer it's because of that delay that we have such stringent requirements now yeah exactly so it's because of of the delay so we have been aware of of what we needed to do for at least a couple of, of decades now we're aware of the situation um because we've delayed i mean globally speaking we've delayed to this point we have we're now facing quite very very strong mitigation rates are, are going to be needed um i mean it's striking Often people think of emissions, they think, oh, so what were the emissions last year? And then they think, well, they probably were similar for, you know, like five or 10 years before that. And we'll kind of continue at those emission levels uh, in, in the future. When in reality, what's been happening uh, more or less since the Industrial Revolution is that you have compounding growth in terms of uh, fossil fuel usage and then the associated greenhouse gas emissions. So you have, you know, of the order of 2 to 3% year in year growth. And so as a result, then you start off with small amounts of emissions early on in the industrial revolution in, in like the 19th century and early 20th century but then as you go on in time they start to really massively pick up 
um, to the point now, exactly as you just mentioned, Noel, so for the last, the emissions that we've emitted globally in the last 30 years, since more or less since the first, uh, first COP and since the Rio summit, Earth summit in 1992, those emissions in just those 30 years account for about half of the emissions in the entire history of human civilization. And if we were to continue on the same trajectory, if we kept that two or 3% year on year growth, the emissions in the next 30 years would be the same as the emissions in the whole of human history up to this point. So that really gives an idea of, of the scale of what we're talking about here. So even to, we're not at presently with the exception of the huge interruptions like uh, COVID or occasional recessions, generally speaking for the last, since the industrial revolution kicked off, we've been, our emissions year on year have been growing and growing significantly. And uh, so we face a challenge even to stabilize that or to peak. So the Paris Agreement talks about, first of all, talks about uh, peaking greenhouse gas emissions because they've been growing historically year on year. So we face the challenge, first of all, to peak them uh, and to stop that year on year growth. And then we face a massive challenge to start reducing those, those emissions year on year and exploring negative emission possibilities with nature-based solutions or technological solutions. So, you know, there's massive inertia here in the system. We have two or three centuries of, of development and we have like a massive, you know, kind of ocean liner moving here at a certain speed. And so there's significant inertia here in order to try and turn that around. And again, that's going to take, it will take a little bit of time, even if we agree on, on all, the, all these very ambitious pledges. Uh, but that time is something that if we want to meet at least the 1.5 and 2 degree thresholds, it's, that's time we don't have a great deal of, uh, given our current understanding from the latest IPCC report, at least. So, John, we, we wish you the very best for, uh, for the conference for COP26. We hope it's successful. We'll be keeping a close eye on it. Um, we know we've been very busy. So thank you for coming in and, and giving us your time. Thanks very much, Noel. Thanks, Liz. Um, good chatting with you. Thanks, John. That brings us to the end of this episode. Our thanks again to Dr. John Hanley for talking with us this month. We'd be delighted to hear your thoughts on this episode, so do reach out to us on the Met Aaron and RTE Weather social channels or drop us an email at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe to the Met Aaron podcast wherever you get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. We'll be back with a new episode soon. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. The Met Aaron podcast is presented and researched by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick and Liz Walsh. Production and editing is by Jandy Lanagon.